0: From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Kadic. We are a show about radical ideas, public intellectuals, and the politics of academia. This week, we are still in semi-sabbatical mode. I've had a very pleasant summer Spending the entire month in Quebec. First in Montreal, I was house sitting some psycho cats. Now I'm in Gatineau, sitting in the forest, reading and recharging my batteries. I did, however, have the very special pleasure of interviewing Dan Denver. Dan is host of one of my favorite podcasts, The Dig. It's where you need to go if you like long, deep, theoretical conversations about left-wing ideas. But the podcast is not just theory. It bridges academia with the world of activism. I consider it a major inspiration for Darts and Letters. It's not exactly what we do, but it's also not that far off. If you like our show, you will like The Dig. So I'm going to play on our feed one of my favorite recent-ish episodes, More on that in a second. First, I talk to Dan Denver. We talk about the dig, about the place of the academic and the intellectual in organized left politics. We talk about the radical media, and we talk about the relationship between the world of ideas and the world of political change. Without further ado, Dan Denver. What is your sort of elevator pitch when you meet someone at a bar? How would you describe
1: the dig? I guess the best way to describe it succinctly is just the smartest, most in-depth analysis of any topic everywhere. I try to find guests who I think are going to provide the most sophisticated, nuanced, and again, like in-depth analysis of whatever subject we're discussing, whether it's the history of racial capitalism the U.S., the history of the left, the present state of politics in Brazil or the UK or wherever, listeners are a mixture of activists and organizers and left academics.
0: You're very much identified now as like a man of the left, right? But at that time, were you thinking of yourself in sort of those terms? Like I'm going to do a podcast about like left theory and organizing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've been on the left and identified as such since the late nineties, since I was in high school. And I was an activist and an organizer during the anti-globalization movement around like the protests in DC against the IMF World Bank in 2000 and whatnot, and anti-war activist in college, and then did all this Latin America and labor and immigrant rights organizing. So I came to journalism very much after being, you know, really firmly on the radical left for a decade. So there was never any question as to whether my podcast would be a left-wing one or not. But there was also never any question that it was about whether it would be like a really intellectual one or not. I felt, you know, I think because I'm, I'm pretty proximate to a lot of academics. My partner, Thea Francos, is a political scientist. I went to Reed College in Portland, Oregon. It just sort of sends a lot of people into PhD programs. So that environment was pretty academic and many of my friends from college went into academia. And, you know, even when I was a reporter at the Philadelphia City Paper, the first thing I did was read every academic history of Philadelphia or sociology that I could find to try to understand the city better, to denaturalize things that were taken as entirely normal in Philadelphia, like the existence of its separate and unequal public school system, which history shows exists for reasons of political economy and racism. But without that context, the school district of Philadelphia is often seen as the the product of the pathologized communities that it serves or the teachers that work there. So kind of providing context was really important for me in the reporting work that I was doing. So I was always reading a lot of academic work, even though I have never been to grad school, you know, or been involved really formally in academia. And then I started an urban studies book group with a bunch of friends who lived in West Philly. And then we read sort of classic histories and sociologies of cities all over the country. So yeah, and during that whole time, I think I was long preoccupied with what I saw as an unfortunate divide between the academic and activist left in part because there's very little non-academic intelligentsia in the U.S. I don't know a lot about this history, but my sense is that this is a product of, you know, post-World War II expansion of academia, and it sort of, you know, professionalizes left intelligentsia and makes everyone into a professor. There are great things to be accomplished in academia, but one downside of that process is, I think, kind of hardening the divide between the academic and non-academic left. And I think that another factor was just sort of like plain old anti intel like American anti-intellectualism, which is just like a deeply American thing that has nothing in particular to do with the left, but is, I think, quite often recapitulated within the left as sort of an anti-elitism or anti-snobbery, or like, hey, let's just get some plain talk about this. But upon closer inspection, it's just normal American anti-intellectualism and not a good thing. And I think that really, spending a number of years living in Latin America really highlighted that for me where the left really doesn't have the same kind of anti-intellectual posture as you sometimes see in the U.S. And, you know, I think a lot of people want the fact that there's an audience for the podcast signals that a lot of people would like to overcome the divide between the academic and activist left.
0: You said that there's not a lot of intellectual work being done outside of academia. Is that, is that how you put it? I'm curious what the kind of intellectual landscape is in the activist left? I mean, presumably there's theorizing being done in a sort of non traditional academic form. What does the kind of relationship between those two spaces look like?
1: I mean, I really think that a lot of the people that you see, who you see writing for popular intellectual publications on the left, they're overwhelmingly academics or journalists. There's a smaller number of organizers who are also writing for N plus one or... But if you pick up like something like the New Left Review, that's all academics. And I'm not, I'm not saying that to, I, you know, these are the publications that I read and people have on my show. It's not like good or bad. It's probably like bad, but it's not bad because, oh, these publications rely too much on academics. It's a reality of the political economy of how intellectual life is organized in the United States. It's one of the few places to actually
0: sustain radical intellectual work. I mean, there's not like a very vibrant, well-funded left-wing think tank world. It's like para-academic world, really. So where's that work going to happen?
1: The left could really use more think tanks. I think, that, I think that'd be really great. But there's really not too much going on in that front. I mean, I do a lot of organizing work in Rhode Island, and it would be amazing to have some sort of left version of ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, I think is what it stands for. You know, the right-wing entity that develops all of this model legislation and circulates it to right-wing legislators all over the country. It would be amazing if we had a left-wing version of that. But we don't
0: yet. At the same time, I mean, on my darker days, I'm pretty sanguine about the radical potential of academia. A lot of people on the left are. I think you use the term in one of your podcasts that a lot of academics are sort of institutionalized within the academia. And like maybe their radicalism is sort of blunted as being part of the academy. What do you think about that? I mean, what what is the role of the academic really in sort of an organized left, in sort of an idealized sense? What should they be doing?
1: I mean, one, I want to defend the importance of just the knowledge production that left academics do, the histories that they write, the sociologies that they write, the context and analysis that they provide. These are necessary things for the left to understand the world in order to change it. And arguments against the importance of the left-wing knowledge production that happens within academia, I think, are pretty pretty short-sighted. The left has never been able to do anything without that kind of analysis and knowledge production. That, That said, academia has tons of systematically conservatizing effects. You have to orient your entire life towards getting tenure, essentially, something that's increasingly not a possibility for broader and broader swaths of people who are pursuing PhDs. So, I mean, you know, perhaps one effect of the the increasing casualization of, of academic labor and the breakdown in the traditional tenure track system with an increasing number of universities assigning more and more coursework to non-tenure track adjunct casualized faculty making very small amounts of money with very heavy course loads, shuttling from university to university to piece together an income, you know, that, that dynamic will, I think, will no doubt have some sort of effect on the professionalization of intellectual life that took place with the post-World War II expansion of the U.S. university system. But if you are trying to do the tenure track hustle, there's an an incredible conservatizing effect of the very system of academia, of having to perform and produce publications in a certain way so as to get tenure without which you're fucked. So I think it is all too rare that you see tenure track faculty, including tenure track faculty, who are doing important intellectual work that's valuable to the left. It's rare that you see people in that position getting involved in actual organizing work. And that's unfortunate because it's not clear who else is supposed to do the organizing work. We can't, this whole left-wing politics thing only works if everyone feels that it's their responsibility to take an active role as organizers on The left. The idea is not to leave it to the the paid staff people of the nonprofit industrial complex. There are organizations that I respect, I mean, I use the term MPIC, like half seriously, half joking, because it's both a real thing, but also, but organizations that are definitely thoroughly nonprofitized, there are plenty of them that also do important work. But that said, it is a problem that, instead of sort of mass movements and mass organizations, with some notable exceptions, we have an array of groups and entities at both the national and local level that sort of pretend they are social movements, but are in fact a small number of staff, maybe with an email list or something. If professors are like, oh, I'm too busy to be organizers, you know, what are, jan- are janitors too busy to be organizers? Are factory workers too busy to be organizers? Are K through 12 teachers? Too busy to be organizers the the idea is that we all need to be organizers, and you know there are hopeful signs in the academy, like the wave of grad student organizing that's that's taken place, and others who are organizing casualized adjunct workers that's that's all very hopeful. I still hear you know by and large that tenure track faculty are. With some notable exceptions, often absent from these sorts of struggles. So it seems at the very least that the faculty should be involved in campus-level struggles, whether over cafeteria workers or graduate workers, but even beyond that, to get involved in larger social movement organizations like like DSA or tenant groups or whatever.
0: Some, sometimes they're even antagonistic against the uh, grad student organizers, you know, like supposedly radical academics. I remember in, in, in Jacobin a few years ago, Liza Featherstone had an article that was called "Radical Academics for the Status Quo," and I never forgot that that title. And I, I see it everywhere. I mean, in her in her article, her example was Judith Butler donating money to Kamala Harris. And I think that there may have been a few other examples, but it's a sort of like institutionalizing effect where I guess these people's like real material interest conflicts with the posture of their radicalism. That makes me very cynical. You can tell him in one of my more cynical moments or the the birding campaign. If you think of like who was his probably most famous academic surrogate would have been Cornell West, who couldn't even get tenure at the institution that he was working in. Yet I do still hold on some hope. I'm not really sure why, but I do. <laughs> I also wanted to ask you about your career in media, but as a kind of intellectual space, I've been really heartened the past, you know, five or so years. What seems like kind of the explosion of an, a really quite theoretically rich intellectual left-wing space of Jacobin, current affairs, dissent, and Plus one... There's probably many, many others and, and new ones spring up every year, it seems. What do you think accounts, like, is is this a phenomenon, is this phenomenon real? Is this like, w- what accounts for the, the growth of these types of institutions?
1: Not to be boringly materialistic, but I think that the rise of these intellectual institutions follows the rise in, Left politics more than the other way around, though it certainly has a kind of uh, feedback effect, a positive feedback effect. This is not a novel storyline, but I think it begins with with Occupy, the cycle of of left wing struggles under Obama, that specifically emerge around the contradictions of the Obama administration. The The hope and promise that so many young liberals and progressives invested in him and the plutocratic and reactionary quality of his actual governance, I think produced the cycle of struggles that begins with with Occupy Wall Street and is followed by Black Lives Matter in 2014. Earlier than that, the anti-deportation movement, which really radicalized especially the Latino youth organizers against Obama, the deporter-in-chief, and then the Dakota Access Pipeline struggles, kind of bringing together economic justice, racial justice, environmental justice struggles. And those things don't kind of perfectly coalesce and articulate together by any means, but together they push forward the phenomenon of the 2016 Bernie campaign, which even after all of these struggles going back to Occupy, which had been some of the most effervescent years that I'd experienced up to that point on the American left. Having been on the American left since the late 90s, I was still totally blown away when Bernie's campaign took off in 2016. I remember when he announced in 2015, and I read about it in a print New York Times article, because I get two print newspapers a day, for as long as I can remember. And it was on page like, it was like deep in the national section, on page like A15 at like the bottom, the bottom corner It's like, Bernie Sanders announces run for president. And I was like, oh, great. He'll have a protest campaign, maybe force Hillary Clinton, whose politics I've, you know, had been detesting for decades. (laughs) Maybe he'll force her to act answer some tough questions, and like move the debate a little to the left. I look forward to voting for him. I'd been a fan of his since the 90s. I didn't think it was gonna amount to much in particular, but very quickly when the rallies started getting enormous and so much energy started coalescing around him, I realized that there was sort of a tectonic shift taking place and a new left that was bigger than it had been in a very long time and much more serious about contesting for actual power than it had been in a very long time, that it was emerging, that we, that we were seeing that emerge in the first Bernie campaign. And so that, obviously, Jacobin had been around prior to that, and Plus One had existed prior to that, but Jacobin's popularity exploded because of that moment when the whole U.S. left was kind of exploding into it, coming into itself for the first time in that way. And N plus one, you know, I don't know exactly when this turn happened. I've been reading it off and on since the aughts, but it became it, it became a much more self-consciously left intellectual publication after that period, much more so than it was before.
0: What was the landscape like then before that in the in kind of media space? Like Luke Savage and I had him on one of our early episodes and we talked a little bit about ad busters. That was pretty much the only thing that sort of came to mind for both of us in terms of like, you know, you worked at an Alt Weekly, but that's more local. But like, what what was the national kind of left media space like before this time?
1: Yeah, I mean, I started subscribing to left publications in the late nineties in high school. And I subscribed to (laughs) Adbusters. I subscribed to The Nation, which as it does now has kind of like a mix of people, a spectrum. You know, Alexander Coburn had a column still then called Beat the Devil that was very good. I had a subscription in these times, which has been around for a very long time. There was a magazine called Z Magazine, which was big on the activi- the late 90s activist left, founded by Michael Alpert. I don't know if he's still around. Yeah, I remember seeing
0: a lot of Noam Chomsky interviews in Z Magazine.
1: Well, and there was ZNet, but ZNet was just like a massive compendium of of articles, you know, and interviews. So that was a big thing, I mean, for me. And I'm trying to think if there's anything. I mean, in high school, I was also reading things like Earth First Journal and stuff. Dollars and Cents, which is still around, I would read that in high school, the Left Economics magazine. Sounds like the scale of this is just a lot lot smaller. Yeah, yeah. I mean, also what emerged really in the late 90s around the anti-globalization movement was indie media which younger people listening have probably never heard of, but was definitely the center of left activist media from the late 90s, from 1999 in Seattle, November 7th, 99, I guess, to through the early aughts, at least. And there was one site, indimedia.org, that was the global site, and then dozens and dozens and dozens of local pages managed by collectives all over the world and so indie media either started or first blew up. I think started, but maybe it was when it blew up in, at the Seattle WTO protests. And it provided this, you know, novel, the internet being relatively young, then novel experience of activists being able to cover the protests themselves, both in terms of photography, videos, and news stories and opinion and analysis, et cetera, bypassing the confines and strictures of the, of the mainstream media. That was a huge deal at the time. Uh, and then they sprung up in every other city and covered everything from local struggles to, if I remember correctly, their bread and butter were these huge summit protests that dominated the era. So that's where I'd tune in to see, you know, what was going on with the mass protests against whatever summit it was in Genoa, in whatever year that was. Yeah, indie media was was huge. I don't know when it kind of started to fade rapidly, but that was that was big. It pointed to kind of another model of left journalism that I don't think really has been replicated in any way, like much more participatory citizen journalist.
0: What's what's next for the dig? What can can listeners look forward to?
1: This week I have an episode with Kristen Damu about her book, Jesus and John Wayne, which is about the gender politics of the American evangelical right and why it's not at all surprising that white evangelicals became Donald Trump's most enthusiastic supporters, that in fact, he was the very sort of man they had been waiting for for quite a long time. And then I'm going to do a series of shorter interviews on Latin America That sounds like a good lineup. Well, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for taking
0: time out of your quasi-sabbatical to chat with me.
1: Always happy to talk about the show.
0: That was Dan Denver, host of The Dig. Now, as a special treat for you, I'm going to play one of my favorite recent episodes. It aired December 5th of last year and is called Identity, Power, and Speech with Femi Taiwo. Femi is a professor of philosophy at Georgetown University and he wrote an article for thephilosopher123.org called Being in the Room Privilege, Elite Capture, and Epistemic Deference. Femi talks to Dan about the essay. And the essay is about standpoint theory and the politics of representation. It covers those types of ideas that suggest minorities have special access to certain types of knowledge. They know things that I just don't know as a white guy. And they ask questions I don't ask as a white guy. The standpoint theorist believes that minorities ought to be privileged in certain epistemic matters because they just know things about oppression better than elites do. So their identities need to be represented and their questions need to be asked by them. That's the typical story, and it's a story that does make sense. But Femi complicates it. He argues that the standpoints being discussed here are still often elite ones. The academic standpoint theorist tends to push for representational wins, but they are often ambivalent or even indifferent to material concerns. This is why, I might add, you have many supposedly radical scholars who work to bust graduate student unions. This is a deft essay and a great interview. It's one I return to every once in a while, and one that builds off nicely from our last episode with Stephen Bradley. Femi's essay and the conversation here is not the typical polemic that dismisses the concerns of ID poll or calls out cancel culture. It actually reminds us to take identity seriously, but in a different way. It reminds us that being an elite Ivy League professor is in fact an identity. And that identity leads to a certain set of questions, a certain set of answers, and a political program that advances a certain kind of interest. As you'll hear in the interview, it's not really about refuting standpoint theory, it's about taking it seriously. Okay, on to the interview. This is Dan Denver's conversation with Femi Taiwo. It played on The Dig December 2nd, 2020.
1: Femi Taiwo, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. You open your essay reflecting upon an email you received from a freelance journalist who offered to pass along a story idea of hers to you. She wrote, quote, I abandoned the pitch because I don't think I'm the right person to write this story. I have no idea what it's like to be black. It's on one level the most ordinary sort of interaction these days, but scratching just a little bit below the surface it proves to be a lot more complex. What it's like to be Black. Those words, upon closer inspection, contain multitudes. What did she mean by what it's like to be Black? And then what did it mean to you? What was her implicit understanding of what you have in common with Black people in general? And how in that interaction did that understanding misfire?
2: You know, I we talked for a while after this. So, you know, I got the strong impression that you know she's someone who's extremely thoughtful about these issues she's not someone who's just kind of thoughtlessly imitating things she's heard at organizing spaces but she thinks deeply about you know what these kinds of interactions are about and how they should go and what she was talking about which um some of the details of which come out later in the essay she was talking about a story idea that involved thinking about the environmental consequences of policy decisions. Um, So the kinds of discussions that are going on under the heading of environmental racism. Um, So I think the kind of person she was imagining given the story idea was um, the sort of person who's black, who grew up in a red line community, who grew up near environmental toxins where that was a result of living in that kind of community and the way that those kind of communities are preyed upon by titans of industry so there were a number of things going on right she was making one kind of claim that seemed to be about knowledge or she had one sort of suspicion that seemed to be about knowledge right if i tried to do this story i might not get the details right i might not Really understand what's properly at stake, I might misrepresent the issue. But she also, I think, had another set of thoughts that often get run together with those first thoughts, but that are actually different. You know, she was thinking about when we write stories, we get paid, we get credit for doing these sorts of things, right? We get our name out there as uh, writers, um, in her case, as a journalist. Part of the thought that she had was, you know, even supposing I could get it right, you know, is it is it my place? Am I the right person to tell this story from a moral perspective? Even kind of irrespective of the question of whether or not I could get the right story, I could represent what's happening in these kind of communities in the right way. And so Helen, you know, I think, as I said before, thought deeply about these things and thought that the the right thing to do on some understanding of right was to pass along the story idea to someone who was better situated in one or ideally both of those respects to tell the story that she was
1: thinking about. Why did her understanding of how you related to what it's like to be Black, how did that that misfire?
2: Yeah, so I thought, you know, the way that she identified what the right person would be to tell the story and to figure out what the story should be and how it should be told was in identity terms. She wanted someone who was from the right racial identity group to have this story. And we could tell the story of why she identified the group in a number of ways. Maybe she just trusts people from that group to know whether or not they have the relevant experience. Maybe she. Maybe she takes being in that group, the right kind of racial identity group to come alongside having the right kind of experience. Um, or maybe she just thinks those people should decide what's relevant in the first place. Um, and so maybe it's just kind of a moral argument all the way down. You know, um, What's important for what the piece is about isn't ascribing Helen a particular view. You know, as, as I said, and as I found out in talking to her, she actually had um, and has deep thoughts about all of these things. Um, but what I took her to be doing in that situation was following a norm. So there's a way of navigating those circumstances. There's kind of rites and rituals. There's prescribed actions. There's symbolic things that we do in situations like this that we might do for a bunch of reasons. We might do because we you know, reflectively think they're the thing to do. We might do because we think we don't have a better answer than the people around us, and that's what they're doing. We might do because we fear the consequences of not doing them. And what I took Helen to be doing was acting on the basis of a norm, acting on the basis of a kind of pattern of ways that people respond to issues like this in the journalism world and i think a fair bit beyond the journalism world in um, a lot of activism and academia and culture quite a bit more general than those aspects of culture
1: in this story story you you identify an equivalence drawn between you a nigerian american and a black American, at least implicitly a black american who is a descendant of enslaved Africans, whose family, for example, arrived in, say, a deindustrializing Chicago during the Great Migration, and then attended underfunded all-Black schools in a neighborhood where poverty was concentrated by legal and extra-legal forces of segregation, and where young men excluded from the labor market were targeted for, for repression by the carceral state. Did her presumption of this equivalence, and I'm not beating up on her, as you say, these are norms that I think And I think that's probably clear to most listeners that these are powerful norms. Does this sort of presumption obscure the way that racism, along with other forms of domination and exploitation, actually operate?
2: Yeah, I think the norm that she was following leads to that consequence. Um, The way that leads to that consequence isn't necessarily because of the ways that we think about each other. I, I actually doubt that helen you know really thought that my experience was equivalent to the experience of someone from uh, a working class african-american neighborhood who was themselves working class and african-american and descended from generations of people who had been enslaved in this country you know i i take helen to be the kind of person who could probably hanged in a conversation that was exploring those kinds of complications. But what's interesting about the norms that we're called to follow in these circumstances are that they actually block those things from discussion. They obscure those things. And they, more importantly, call us to treat each other in ways that don't attend to those kinds of differences
1: before we get any further let's define standpoint epistemology in theory you cite this definition quote one knowledge is socially situated two marginalized people have some positional advantages in gaining some forms of knowledge three research programs ought to reflect these facts That all seems pretty straightforward and really unimpeachable. But in practice, you write what we often see instead is what you call deference epistemology. Explain that distinction that you're drawing.
2: Yeah. So, standpoint epistemology is a perspective on knowledge, it's a perspective on how we get knowledge. And to some extent, it's a perspective on how we should get knowledge. So, number three of the list that you just read, says that research programs ought to reflect the facts that knowledge is socially situated and that marginalized people have some positional advantages in getting some forms of knowledge, right? But deference epistemology is more like number three than more like one and two. So if you stare at number three, research programs ought to reflect these facts about how knowledge is situated and who gets what kinds of knowledge. It doesn't tell you how, in and of itself. And there's been a lot of discussion by um, the standpoint epistemologists of many different areas of thought and practice, some of which are academic and some of which are not. The kind of origin of standpoint epistemology was in a Hungarian Marxist philosopher, Lukash. that standpoint of epistemology was firmly about the difference that class position makes to what one can know and what perspective one has. And feminists built on that foundation and came to some additional conclusions, learned more about the kinds of positions that matter. In the
1: context of women's liberation movement consciousness raising.
2: Exactly. Yeah, in the context of a political project that was challenging patriarchy and not just, you know, particular claims to knowledge or particular claims about what the world was like. And so deference epistemology is different from standpoint epistemology um, as a theory in that deference epistemology, as I characterize it, is just a way, a particular way of living out standpoint epistemology or you could say a particular way of answering the question, how should we do number three? How should research programs or anything else that we do reflect the facts that we started with, the facts that knowledge are, is socially situated and that marginalized people have some advantages? What should we do in light of those facts? Deference epistemology is one kind of answer. And the point of what I was saying was we shouldn't run that together with what we started with. Deference epistemology is one kind of answer, but we could answer that question about what to do in another way. And I think that different way, which I call constructive epistemology, is actually a better way of living out what standpoint epistemology is about.
1: It's become so identified with certain sides of these identity debates that we're always enmeshed in, but you could trace standpoint epistemology all the way back to to Marx, who certainly believed that knowledge was socially situated.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, And I think that core thought that who you are has impacts on what you know, that's that's a very old thought in many traditions of philosophy, many intellectual traditions, many political traditions. Um, And I think attention to that, the attention to that, that has been brought up by standpoint epistemology, whether um, in the feminist tradition or in the Marxist tradition or in the Marxist feminist tradition or in any other tradition, I think paying attention to that fact is extremely important. And, you know, we owe the people who have done the work to make that apparent to us. We owe them a lot. But one of the things we owe them is, I think, living out standpoint epistemology in a way that is progressive, is good, Is that moves the world forward rather than backward.
1: You write, quote, the trap wasn't that standpoint epistemology was affecting the conversation, but how? Broadly, the norms of putting standpoint epistemology into practice call for practices of deference, giving offerings, passing the mic, believing. And, and you add that these are norms that are typically enacted within rooms occupied by elites. And though I'm sure these practices of deference are abundantly familiar to anyone listening, I'd like you to explain how they operate and also how and why it is that this framework so often locates questions of justice in the realm of conversation, discourse, recognition, representation.
2: So the conversation with Helen that the piece starts with is a good example of the kind of thing that I had in mind. So um, in that case, you could think of it as an occasion of passing the mic, right? Helen has an idea about a story that she thinks ought to be told. She thinks that story would be good. It would be helpful for the kind of people who are facing problems of environmental racism. But she worries about whether or not she's the right person to tell it, given her understanding of the norms that people are going to use to evaluate her and her own understanding of what she takes to be at stake with the norms, right? And so she passes the mic. She says, I'm not the right person to tell this story. I'm looking for someone who is the right person to tell this story because I think it's worth being told. And she gets in a conversation with me and I fit enough of the characteristics of what that person should be like, given my racial identity. And she says, maybe you should tell this story rather than me. And so the both of us are people from, on a national scale, on a global scale, I think very privileged backgrounds compared to much of the people that live on this earth. It's that fact in and of itself helps to explain why we were in touch, and it helps explain how our interaction went when it's combined with these norms that I'm calling deference epistemology.
1: Does it also explain the emphasis on discourse and language?
2: I think it does. So the emphasis on discourse and language, um, to me, fits broadly with this phenomenon called elite capture that I've been thinking about. There was another piece that I wrote on Elite Capture. And in that one, I thought about a distinction between elites and the rest of their group, whatever their group might be. And I thought, one thing that's typically true of elites of a group is that they have simpler social problems than the rest of that group. And I can put that in really visceral terms as a Nigerian-American, right? There there are millions upon millions of Nigerians who face much different and I think much graver problems than I do with respect to housing security, with respect to police violence. Uh, Afrobarometer put out a report saying that something like three quarters of all Nigerians who had interacted with police in any way shape or form reported being extorted for money and these are not problems that are characteristic of my life yet i am likelier than most nigerians to be in the elite spaces where nigerian issues might come up whether it's the african studies department at georgetown university or whether it's a panel being held by a a DC think tank, so on and so forth, because of where I am, because of what prestige I have, because of my privileges of various kinds. And so in these spaces, I could have different kinds of priorities. Maybe what's important to me is changing the actual structure of policing, changing the material structures of the global economy and the Nigerian economy, such that people don't face those kinds of problems. But my experiences of those issues are much different than most Nigerians. I'm housing secure. I have income security. I'm a salaried employee. And so the thing about me that overlaps with what Nigerians experience might be the reputation of Nigeria might be the presence or prestige given to figures, intellectual figures from that background, or maybe even uh, activists from that background. And so, you know, discourse might tap into those kinds of questions. Conversation might tap into those kinds of questions that do have in common with the rest of the group but it might not meet the same kinds of priorities that the full group would have. So it might be more important to me than someone who's housing insecure. It might be more important to me than someone who faces a particularly extortive kind of policing that the students in Georgetown University read the kind of um, texts that Nigerians have produced. So it's a question of priorities, I think.
1: You write, "...access to these rooms is itself a kind of social advantage, and one often gained through some prior social advantage. They are most likely to be in the room precisely because of the ways in which they are systematically different from, and thus potentially unrepresentative of, the very people they are then asked to represent in the room." Are the two things related? In other words, does the very emphasis on the balance of power within the room, can that serve to obscure the much larger balance of power, imbalance of power between the room and the rest of the world?
2: I think that's exactly how it functions. I think the focus on what's going on in the room, who's being listened to in the room, obscures the broader social questions that we might ask if we were thinking equivalently about the people who aren't in the room. And the story about selection, the story about how I got into the room, I think helps explain why. One, it helps explain why my interests are different from the interests of the average person who isn't in the room. And two, I think it helps explain why the kinds of things I will say and the kinds of things that matter to me and the kinds of things I will push for as a result of being empowered within the room are not of any necessary relationship to the larger group dynamics that are the supposed reason for empowering my viewpoint. So so just to give an example, because that's a little bit abstract. So I, uh, racial justice is an easy example. So the very things that put me in the room where racial justice is the thing to talk about might explain why when I talk about racial justice, I talk about the sorts of things um, that are of a concern to um, the sorts of people who could make it into fancy panels and so on and so forth, rather than The kinds of issues I mentioned before, rather than housing insecurity, rather than um, police extortion, rather than um, various kinds of uh, intimate partner violence, even I have the kinds of resources that can let me navigate those problems in a much different way than other people. It doesn't make me immune to those problems, um, but I have a different relationship to them than other people.
1: There's this... Really tired debate, of course, that pits race against class or various forms of identity against class. But your essay makes it so clear that racism is obviously an incredibly powerful force, but it has various manifestations and the variety of those manifestations are are profoundly material. I think that's right. I'm, I'm not even sure
2: what it would mean to put to pit race versus class. Um, especially on the view of the world that I have, which you know is often referred to by the term racial capitalism. Even that's a little misleading because it makes it sound like well, now there's two things: there's race and there's capitalism, and the world is just those two things. But you know, I think there's there's power. There's power over your material circumstances, and There's various ways to answer the question of how this or that person ended up with power over their material circumstances. Um, But once you've answered it, then you have something to use to understand the world, to understand how that person relates to the world, and to understand what's at stake for that person in a given interaction. And that doesn't become true. That doesn't become any more or less true because we're using race to think about power um, than if we were using class to think about power, than if we were using gender to think about power.
1: You write, and I'm going to read a a lengthy and really excellent passage here, quote, deference practices that serve attention-focused campaigns, e.g., we've read too many white men. Let's now read some people of color can fail on their own highly questionable terms. Attention to spokespeople from marginalized groups could, for example, direct attention from the need to change the social system that marginalizes them. Elites from marginalized groups can benefit from this arrangement in ways that are compatible with social progress. But, treating group elites' interests as necessarily or even presumptively aligned with full group interests involves a political naivete we cannot afford. Such treatment of elite interests functions as a racial Reaganomics, a strategy reliant on fantasies about the exchange rate between the attention economy and the material economy. Perhaps the lucky few who get jobs finding the most culturally authentic and cosmetically radical description of the continuing carnage are really winning one for the culture. Then, after we in the chattering classes get the clout we deserve and secure the bag, its contents will eventually trickle down to the workers who clean up after our conferences, to slums of the Global South's megacities, to its countryside, but probably not. What is the presumed exchange rate between the attention economy and the material economy here? Or is that relationship to the material economy even really thought about at all when these norms are created and, and enacted?
2: I I think the distinction in the question is an important one. And from day to day, I feel like I waffle between different answers to that question. Some days I wake up and I think, you know, people people really do believe that if we diversify the syllabi, that if we consume media from people of the right backgrounds, people genuinely believe that the rest of the world is going to change. And they're not sure, or they're just not saying how, but there is a line, there is a trail that starts at reading Fanon and ends at the dismantling of racial capitalism. And other days I wake up and I just stare at that first thing that I just said, and I think, no, no one believes that. There are some people who trust that someone else has a more specific answer or maybe trust that we will come up with a more specific answer but nobody now thinks that we have one and people are just content with you know the short-term consequences that we can be sure of in lieu of that larger social transformation so it's enough that we listen to different people than we were listening to yesterday. It's enough that different people are famous or that different people are empowered in this or that organizing space. That's enough. And there's a very cynical version of that. We could say, you know, maybe the people who believe that just are the people who would be empowered, or maybe they have some weird parasocial relationship to the people who would be empowered. You know, I I don't try, I, I try to shy away as much as I can from Too much of the psychology, especially, you know, when it would tempt me to say bad faith things because because I, you know, whenever I get in that mode of thought, I go back to thinking about people like Helen and, you know, Helen's just one recent and convenient example. I've met a thousand people of all the identity groups you could think of who just were very thoughtful people and very serious people and meant meant everything they said from a social justice standpoint, who I respect, who I've trusted with my safety in organizing campaigns, who I've, you know, who I've trusted with my labor. And so I just don't believe that there's people out there. You know, I, I don't believe that the whole phenomenon is just reducible to people out there grifting, Like right? That's just not what's happening. But nevertheless, there's, a bunch of how questions that seems to me that people aren't asking. How do we get, or that, or that people haven't come up with things that seem to me like good answers. How do we get from a redistribution of attention to solutions? You know, maybe I just demand different things out of answers to that question than other people do. I, I think that's plausible, but I think there's, there's problems in this area.
1: It's complicated. A lot of people are no doubt sincere. Others are no doubt nervous about doing or saying the wrong thing, but are there also things we can learn about the interests of the institutions where these play out, where where one can presume a little more bad faith or cynicism in universities or corporate America or the nonprofit industrial complex or in liberal democratic politics or in the case of Jess LaBombalera. <laughs> the flamboyant the flamboyant white jewish academic who for years pretended she was afro latina and was a bit of a scold on precisely a notorious scold on precisely the sort of deference epistemology practices that that you're critiquing
2: yeah um (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean there's definitely there's definitely the bomboleras. there's definitely people who are in a clear-eyed way Um, exploiting social norms. And, you know, I I, I don't have anything interesting to say about those people. We can't avoid the imprint of those people by switching to different norms. There's just people who don't believe in the moral project that norms are for or who don't care, (laughs) you know? So (laughs) so those people are always going to, you know, grifters don't grift. Like, you can't prevent... (laughs) At a population level, you can't prevent a few out of the 7 billion of us from just exploiting whatever norms are there. So I want to acknowledge that, but then leave them aside. Uh, What do you say about the other people and these institutional formations that you're pointing out are actually a good reason to keep moving away from the grifter model of explaining what's happening in social justice spaces? Take the institution for, uh, take the institution of the university, which I obviously participate in and so have some experience with. And if you think about the reward structure, the incentive structure, and I think just as importantly, the punishment structure of universities, you can start to tell a story about why these sorts of things take hold that doesn't at all invoke this whole cynical grifter kind of scenario. What do you get rewarded for in the academy, especially in the parts of the academy where these sorts of norms circulate? You get award, You get rewarded for thinking of the new name for a thing. That's how you get people to cite your paper. You get rewarded for your description of a phenomenon. Sometimes the evaluation is aesthetic. Sometimes it's social. Does the in-crowd in your discipline view that as a helpful elaboration of something someone has said? Does it help them acquire prestige? If you look at these political forces, you're looking at the things that train academics to engage with social issues in the academy in the way that they do. And because the academy takes up so much of our thought and consciousness, Because for a lot of us who are in the academy, it's an outsized proportion of our engagement with the issues that we think of. For some of us, it's our entire engagement with the issues that we think of. Then it's training us, it's creating our politics. And this is something, this is a point uh, Nick Mitchell raises in Spectre in Nick's review of Frank Wilderson's book, Afro Pessimism. This takes place in an institutional context and that institutional context can tell us a lot about why people say and do the things that they say and do. And so, I don't think it's that people are being dishonest. I think people are honestly engaging in politics in a way that makes sense where they are. Again, it's it's this just is the inside of standpoint epistemology. How you are socially situated affects what you know. And it just turns out that socially situated doesn't just mean your identity group, but it means the actual material circumstances, the incentives. It means where you stand in social life. And the academy is a place to stand in social life. And if you look at what the academy is like and what it rewards, then you'll see the kinds of things that point towards deference epistemology.
1: All that said, is it still better to intentionally have more women, more Black people, more Latinos on academic panels in published books, on TV, and uh, let's say on podcasts. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I mean, you know, when when <laughs> when, when the points put squarely <laughs> to me like that, you know, then then the question to me becomes, you know, why not? Right? Like, you know, um, our research pr- projects should reflect the fact that, in general, different people who are situated differently. No different things and i think much more importantly there just wasn't a reason for the exclusion of these people in the first place right there wasn't a reason that intellectual life should have been cis white male dominated and so there's no reason to carry forward yesterday's apartheid into how we do tomorrow's academy or tomorrow's entertainment industry or tomorrow's whatever whatever it is that we're talking about. And because there's inertia in social and political systems, we might have to actually put effort in to undo the demographic imprint of yesterday's apartheid. And so, sure, diversify the syllabi. Sure, diversify the podcast hosts. Whatever. Just don't confuse that project With the project of racial justice, with the project of anti-capitalism, with the project of fixing the most serious things that are broken about society. Because there's no guaranteed relationship, perhaps no relationship at all, between those two goals.
1: We started by talking about how you, in a sense, got, and I presume, frequently, get misrecognized as a different sort of black man than you are. But, of course, it's not just identity politics or deference epistemology that does that. American racism has made racial categories that are nonetheless in so many ways very much real precisely because people, including the police, see someone like you as black. Full stop. As Du Bois famously said, Quote, the black man is a person who must ride Jim Crow in Georgia. Or as I heard recently on a, on a podcast about immigration in southern New England, that's really good, uh, called Mosaic. It, someone say, said this with in reference to New England's Cape Verdean community. Quote, the Cape Verdean from Pawtucket understands that he or she is black when their hands are on the hood of the police car. How does de- the practice of deference, deference epistemology that you're assessing, how does that fit into how this this issue of how racism makes race along the lines of what the field sisters are talking about when they write about racecraft that given that racism imposes its racial categories upon everyone whether one likes it or not that's kind of the point we can't wave race away as an illusion but we also shouldn't as you emphasize operate within its like naturalized confines H- how do you navigate that tension
2: Yeah, that that tension is tough because, you know, on the one hand, in a deep way, that's what race is, right? When people were abducted and put on slave ships and enslaved, they were Yoruba, they were Hausa, they were Fulani, they were whatever they were. They had their own political ecology, they had their own history They had their own social basis for deciding who they were and what they were and what that meant, and a whole different set of struggles around trying to renegotiate those things or trying to maintain those things. And they were taken over to a part of the world that wanted to impose different ones, different identities. You're no longer... Hausa, now you are Black. That's what's important about you. That's what's true about you. And so, what's being brought up here is just what social categories even are from the perspective of politics and from the perspective of power. And so, what I'm saying is less, you know, that these categories are illusory and more that we need to take stock of what challenges to those categories and much more importantly the forms of injustice that circulate them and that create them and that sustain them you know we need to be a little more serious about what challenges to those mean because those people are in rooms too and they don't tend to be in the rooms that can be seriously challenged by deference epistemology. You know, and this is a point that I think circles back to your earlier question about the focus on conversation and the focus on discourse and the focus on attention. If the primary things that are creating race and racism, to use your example, are What the police are doing, whether they're forcing, you know, whether they're stopping and frisking people or whatever else, whatever forms of harassment and violence it might be. If it's what the banks are doing in terms of who they deem credit worthy and where investment goes, if it's what the welfare offices are doing. So if it turns out that the things that most support the systems of racial oppression and gender oppression are being planned in different rooms than the rooms that we're debating conversational etiquette in. And if our conversational etiquette doesn't challenge those basic things, doesn't prevent the police from stopping and harassing and behaving violently towards Cape Verdeans, doesn't prevent the bankers from denying loans on the basis of race, doesn't prevent intimate partner violence, doesn't prevent the construction of inaccessible housing, then we put our focus in the wrong place. And if we don't have a story about how we're going to challenge those deeper practices, by way of these smaller practices that I have to question what the focus on these smaller practices is
1: for. Another, an example along the lines of policing that comes to mind is the most famous one from the pre-Black Lives Matter Obama administration, which was Henry Louis Gates Jr. being interpolated in a very reductive way as, as black when he's arrested by that Cambridge cop But then his experience ends with the beer summit at the White House, which is not the standard outcome of of such an interaction with police.
2: Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a really good example. Right. And you can imagine, you know, what did the police officer and Skip Gates and Obama discuss at this beer summit? And did they hear
1: Biden was drinking? Biden was there, too, with a uh, non-alcoholic beer, I recall. Of course, of course he was. (laughs) You
2: know, and I'm sure and I'm sure they all shared the mic. I'm sure they all heard each other's perspectives. And I'm sure that nothing changed as a result of it. To what extent does it matter how that conversation went? And that's a conversation that includes some of the most powerful people in the world a very powerful academic and, you know, the so-called leader of the free world, you know, the president of this large imperial country that sits atop the global order. If their conversation didn't matter, substantively speaking, you know, what are we gonna challenge by way of our conversations? And again, that's not to say that conversations are irrelevant. That's not to say that it doesn't matter how we talk to each other. We just need to be clear on what we can achieve by changing how we talk to each other.
1: Your critique has been on my mind all week as I've been reading coverage of Biden's appointments, where the issue of race and gender representation has really kind of been competing with attention to appointees' ideology for space in the newspaper. And I think overall that the question of race and gender representation has won out pretty decisively in terms of what matters about these appointees, as though ideology is somehow unrelated to racial or gender gender justice, when in fact, ideology is what is what a given appointee thinks U.S. foreign policy should be towards Palestinians, or what criminal justice policy should look like for mass incarcerated Americans, or if the economy might be remade to empower women who are forced to work a double shift at work and then at home. What do you make of these dynamics where it's not just in activist spaces or in academia, but where really at the highest echelons of empire and capital in the carceral state, you see deference epistemology marshaled to actually defend or deflect attention away from incredibly racist and oppressive and violent institutions and politics?
2: I mean, in, in that case, if we're talking about what very powerful elected officials and formal political types are up to, then I think you really do need to bring back out the cynical grifter story that we set aside. <laughs> like does anyone, you know, here here I fully embrace my cynical side. I just don't believe that anyone genuinely believes that it matters that Gina Haspel runs our black sites as opposed to a <laughs> cis man or something i i find me a person who argues that and i'll find you a liar right <laughs> i'm i yeah i don't even i don't there's not anything else to say about those people it's an entirely cynical appropriation and co-option of kinds of thoughts that often travel in tandem with standpoint epistemology I'm sure standpoint epistemologists, maybe not all of them down to a person, obviously, but it would be my guess that that's the prevailing view among standpoint epistemologists. And I think we should, you know, let those people be disingenuous, but worry about what we believe.
1: Perhaps the most prominent recent distillation of deference epistemology has been the liberal call on on Twitter and elsewhere to listen to Black women. but But it often turns out, upon closer inspection, that there's a rather selective group of black women who liberals believe are appropriate spokespeople for black women as a group. Does the operation of deference epistemology within elite spaces not only privilege elite speakers within elite spaces, but also, does it also confer on elites, including white elites, the power to choose who gets to represent oppressed groups? I think the
2: ability to decide who you defer to in strategic ways, I think clearly in a direct sense kind of cheapens what deference is, right? If you just ignore the people of the identity group that don't agree with the perspective that you've already developed, then all you've really gained is the ability to use someone else's identity as a smokescreen for your own politics. Um, And I think that falls under the heading of what I described as moral cowardice um, at some point in the essay. Um, But I think what is also interesting about that in the U.S. context, most likely in other contexts, but I'm just speaking to what I have more experience of, what's particularly interesting about that is the way that it kind of weaponizes the U.S.'s own history of segregation and its imprint on Passage to elite spaces. You know, I imagine the white liberal, whether they're earnest or not, whether they're honest or not, whether they're cynical or not, I imagine that person must hear a very different thing by believe black women than I do. I I just imagine that must play a different role in their life because for most people, in this country, particularly of affluent white backgrounds, their friend groups and social groups aren't that diverse. There was a study around this a while back. I can't um, off the top of my head recall the numbers, but it w- but you know there was a very small number of direct social connections to black people among you know the modal white Americans. And so for a number of these people, the only contact to political perspectives on the relevant issues that they might have might just be the person trotted in front of them as a Black woman with a perspective on this issue.
1: The person on, on MSNBC, let's say.
2: Exactly, right? It's just listen to Black women just more or less just means listen to Joy Reid for them because that's the person who they'll whose ideas that they're going to have any real kind of exposure to whereas you know someone with a different background i grew up around many many black people there's many black women whose perspectives i'm familiar with on this issue or that issue my academic training involved connection to people um and so There's a range of things, there's a range of perspectives I might have access to and could think about when someone says to me, believe black women. Right. So I don't know, I don't know what the intended social impact of that phrase is supposed to be. um, But that's the social environment it interacts with. You know, I think that works out well for you if you're Joy Reid. Um, I don't know how well it works for working class black women who aren't on TV. Maybe you know maybe it maybe it does work well. I don't know, but yeah,
1: that's a really important point, but some of this deference epistemology you know the listen to or center or follow black women's sort in particular really thrives within our segregated society because if one knows a decent number of Black people or Latino people or whatever, one would realize that Black women or Latino people or whatever group have an incredible diversity of opinions on pretty much anything like any human being.
2: It's hard not to read. I I don't want to pick on that particular slogan in general. I mean, for, for a number of reasons, one of which is, you know, because it means a different thing among black people, you know, it's a much more defensible thing to say if you're talking to black people, I think, or at least a different kind of thing to say. you know, Then it seems like it's a criticism of patriarchy and a phenomenon of not taking women seriously in our own spaces. And that's a much different statement than telling the white liberal to listen to Joy Reid in effect. But in a way, you know, that's one of the hard things about social media, that it's so hard to tie down a message to a particular context, because messages circulate in different ways than they would without that technology. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite
1: podcast for thoughtful discussions on the US left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Palestine, a socialist introduction, edited by Sumeya Awad and Brian Bean. Palestine: A Socialist Introduction systematically tackles a number of important aspects of the Palestinian struggle for liberation, contextualizing it in an increasingly polarized world and offering a socialist perspective on how full liberation can be won. Through an internationalist, anti-imperialist lens, this book explores the links between the struggle for freedom in the United States and that in Palestine and beyond. It examines both the historical and contemporary trajectory of the Palestine Solidarity Movement in order to glean lessons for today's organizers, and compellingly lays out the argument that, in order to achieve justice in Palestine, the movement has to take up the question of socialism, regionally and internationally. As Noura Erekat says of the book, quote, The volume provides the reader with an internationalist framework defined as a commitment to anti-imperialism and uses it to place Palestine into local, regional, and global historical context. The book connects the past to our present and, despite the daunting odds before us, sustains a commitment to a socialist future where all of us are free because all of us are free. Palestine, a socialist introduction, edited by Sumaya Awad and Brian Bean, out now from Haymarket Books. We have this dynamic where we have seen a black president and now a, a black woman vice president, but we have not seen the end or really any meaningful curbing of residential and educational segregation or mass incarceration or so many other problems that in our racist capitalist system are characteristic of, of many Black people's experience in this country. And this contradiction between the promise of a Black president and the persistent injustices of Black reality has often, I think correctly, been seen as as the context within which Black Lives Matter first erupted. To what degree do you see present-day Black radical politics as addressing or grappling with this issue of deference epistemology, if not, if not in those terms that, that you're writing about.
2: That's, interesting. That's an interesting way of framing the most recent years of Black radical struggle. It just seems to me that especially when politicians are concerned that Black activists in the U.S. have been, I think, very clear-eyed about what black leadership does and does not mean, Um, particularly in the most recent decade or so. Um, I think the uprising in Baltimore, um, I think the ongoing campaign, BLMLA, for example, had been protesting a uh, black DA, Jackie Lacey, for for years that that campaign had been going i think that there's an understanding among movement people that there isn't a guarantee of how people will protect your interests based on what their identity is and i think what's most interesting to me about that is how that has failed to inform the kind of commentary in other spaces on the issues that these movements are talking about. I think it's pretty apparent from those kinds of contexts. I think it was probably apparent to people in Flint or Baltimore that what was that issue was how people were treated, and that racism had everything to do with that, but that beating back structural racism was more than just having black faces in high places. Um, and I think, I think that sort of thing was clear along other identity dimensions as well. Um, and I think working back from that to a broader view of what identity means and what it doesn't mean, I think is the sort of thing that the essay was about.
1: Deference epistemology can also facilitate really bad organizational vibes and dynamics in terms of political organizations in particular. And in particular, and you touch on this rather carefully, it can also empower troubled personalities who destabilize groups and can undermine their political project. You write, quote, In Conflict is Not Abuse, Sarah Schulman makes a provocative observation about the psychological effects of both trauma and and felt superiority. While these often come about for different reasons and have very different moral statuses, they result in similar behavioral patterns. Chief among these are misrepresenting the stakes of the conflict, often by overstating harm, or representing others' independence as a hostile threat, such as failures to center the right topics or people. These behaviors, whatever their causal history, have corrosive effects on individuals who perform them, as well as the groups around them, especially when a community's norms magnify or multiply these behaviors rather than constraining or metabolizing them. This is a powerful passage that I know will resonate with many listening. My question is, how does that operate? How does deference epistemology do these two related things, both transforming political disagreements into unforgivable wrongs, and also creating these group norms that protect such behavior against criticism by calling such criticism, say, tone policing.
2: There are forms of sanction that protect this, like the accusation of tone policing, for example. But I think the deeper thing that's going on is just deference itself. I'm confident that If you had social norms where what things people said, whether they were about harm or about offense or about trauma, were evaluated, then I think that by itself would produce a very different social environment than deference epistemology. Because at the end of the day, deference epistemology tells you not to evaluate certain things in certain situations. And I think the potential of that for particularly egregious kinds of exploitation are just obvious as soon as you've described it, right? Like the if you defer, if you say, well, this person's perspective is what we're going with, kind of regardless of what I privately feel, I think you're gonna encourage very recognizable forms of abuse, very recognizable forms of bullying, and part of the reason why I was so oblique about this and why I'm still being so oblique about this is just because i'm 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 confident that people will recognize this phenomenon and and the point isn't to demonize people who behave in a certain way or who have dealt with certain kinds of psychological problems, my point is just to point out the role of norms in making those things worse rather than helping.
1: And it's also obviously not to say that people don't suffer or that we shouldn't pay attention to trauma and take it seriously. You write, quote, I take concerns about trauma especially seriously. I grew up in the United States, a nation structured by settler colonialism, racial slavery, and their aftermath with enough collective and historical trauma to go round. I also grew up in a Nigerian diaspora community, populated by many who had genocide and living memory. At the national and community level, I have seen a lot of traits of norms, personality, quirks of habit and action that I've suspected were downstream of these facts. At the level of individual experience, I've watched and felt myself change in reaction to fearing for my dignity or life, to crushing pain and humiliation. I reflect on these traumatic moments often and very seldom think that was educational. Contra the old expression, pain, whether born of oppression or not, is a poor teacher. Suffering is partial, short-sighted, and self-absorbed. We shouldn't have a politics that expects different oppression is not a prep school how does deference epistemology rely upon this conveying of a sort of pedagogical and epistemic sa- status upon suffering and trauma and, and why contrary to conventional wisdom is that neither accurate nor nor helpful
2: i think one of the things i've found most alienating about this phenomenon that i'm describing is deference epistemology is the attitude towards trauma and suffering that's typically involved. And, and this section of the essay was my attempt to say why. But it's just, I introduced the section by saying that what I have to say in the section where I talk about trauma is more conviction than contention or something like that, more conviction than traditional argument or something. But it's just, it's the furthest thing from how I've experienced the world that trauma is educational. And I just, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm alone. Unfortunately, the world contains the depths of violence and despair where we could test this theory out. You could go to places post-genocide, you could go to places post-ethnic cleansing, and you could see... How character building of an experienced trauma was. Uh, I just, I just don't, I don't understand the reverence that trauma holds in some political corners. That's not what it means to me. That's not what it seemed to mean to the other people around me growing up. And I don't see the things that come out of treating trauma this way in a positive light as. You know, as the essay as a whole, is kind of a long attempt to say. And so I think the deference epistemology in the fact that it often kind of legitimates itself by invoking the language of trauma or the experience of it, that deference epistemology often takes it that oppressed people have and the insight that the strategy seems to assume that it grants you i just think that that's uh i it just strikes me as a thoroughly fictional relationship to reality to suffering and much deeper than anything else i said in this in the essay i just have no desire to participate in it and i won't
1: and, and the status is accorded automatically because you draw this distinction between the raw experience of trauma, which, as you write, is a, is a poor teacher, and on the other, the process of drawing political wisdom from trauma, which is something that always, you write, requires consciousness raising. And I think that consciousness raising, in turn, seems like it requires what we might call organizing. This ideological and psychological transformation that can occur, that I've seen occur in many people, when people organize with others, a process of coming to a a personal and a politically contextualized personal knowledge through being in a sort of sociopolitical relationship with other people.
2: Yeah, it's work. And it's a lot of work. And one of the reasons why it's a lot of work is because trauma is actually, you know, in the default, bad for you. That's part of why we don't want to experience it. Right. You know, it's not like, It's not like exercise where feeling the burn is constructive in the default case. Like, actually, trauma is a thing that mostly messes you up. And it's a testament to the work and effort and struggles of the feminist movement and of labor movements and of people that have got out and made something other than more suffering out of the trauma that people were experiencing. Experiencing. You know, it's a testament to the work that those people did, both the organizers and the people being organized with, that people have made radical intellectual traditions and that people have made whole cultural practices out of trauma that encoded something like knowledge, that encoded things like insight. It's a testament to the work that they did. It's not some automatic crown that you get for suffering. It was it was built, and it was built intentionally. And it could be built intentionally because people recognized that they had to build it and that it wasn't there already.
1: Yeah, this this made me think about the work that my friend and, friend and comrade political scientist, Mia Inouye, is doing. She's writing about organizing and how a basic problem for organizers is how to help people overcome incapacitation, oppression, yes, does give people knowledge of their own suffering, but it also undermines people's sense of their own political efficacy and undermines their opportunity to develop political skills. And like you say, oppression is not a prep school. And so organizing at its most basic level aims to change that. My question is, does, does deference epistemology then and its treatment of trauma, which includes, as you write, this quote, hyper-sanitized and thoroughly fictional caricature of oppressed people, Is one of the the core problems with it really that it undermines the very philosophy that must guide the actual practice of organizing?
2: Yeah, it's the combination of the fact that it invites us to look away from the disadvantages that come with oppression and trauma, which undermines the practical things we would have to do to address those and to respond to those. And not only does it look away from those things, but I think on a certain kind of interpretation it lies about them. It tells you that it doesn't matter that people don't have labs or research time to decide whether the Mission Department of Environmental Quality, or to be able to prove, I should say, that the Mission Department of Environmental Quality is lying about the quality of the water. It tells you that those things don't matter. It tells you that it doesn't matter that people don't have any organized body that can organize a strike, for example. It only calls attention to this supposed advantage of knowledge and does so in a way that assumes either the non-existence or or irrelevance of all these other material disadvantages that we could be making it our business to try to intervene in. And so organizing in response to exactly the sorts of things that motivated standpoint epistemology in the first place, I think would have to start by telling the truth that those disadvantages matter. And to the extent that we can intervene in those disadvantages, to the extent that we can, to the extent that we can do some power building, around those other forms of disadvantage that are bundled with general oppression. So what's important to me about the alternative that I call the constructive view is that starts from what I think we have to start with, which is telling the truth about the full set of advantages and disadvantages that all are at play and that all matter. You know, Yes, experiencing oppression and trauma can give you insight and information that you can't get anyhow else. But that's not the only thing that matters. It matters whether or not you have access to be able to produce knowledge with other people and to produce proof with other people for to use the example of the um, Flint residents that's referenced in the essay. It matters whether or not You have people who have the time to find things out and to communicate those things. It matters whether or not you have the worker organization to be able to convert knowing that something is wrong to being able to hold a strike, for example, and challenge that thing that is wrong. All these other material differences.
1: And and believing that you have the power to challenge it.
2: Exactly, right? Right you know and and believing that you have the power to challenge challenge it and having the evidence that you have the power to challenge it and having the resources to make that true and until we tell the truth about those things i think these points about the potential epistemic benefits of trauma and oppression ring hollow to me seem like
1: mistakes i'm also thinking that not only does deference epistemology undermine organizing but also the other way around that our disorganized society facilitates the spread of deference epistemology, because your essay brings up this question about what individuals or entities can speak for larger groups with whom they're associated. Are individuals considered representative of groups because they share a common trait like race or gender, or are they representative of groups because they have some relational bond of representation through an organized group? What what I'm thinking about is like a slippage between two different but related definitions of the word representative. Like A, representative meaning a person chosen or appointed to speak on behalf of or act on behalf of others. And then B, representative meaning someone who is somehow typical of a group. And to me, this treatment of individuals of certain individuals in elite spaces as automatically representative of larger social groups, it seems connected to this uh, this broader problem of representation in an era of massive and systematic disorganization. There's like a, a vacuum in substantive leader, substantive representation of organized collectivities. And I think that's because there's a major lack of popular organization in our society. And so Without concrete social and political organization within which kind of deeper forms of representation can be rooted through social and political relationships, individuals get treated as automatically representative of abstract social groups. And you you emphasize elite capture, which I think is important, but I think there's another deep factor at play here, perhaps, which is the notion that an individual can represent automatically some imagined collectivity in the absence of any organizational representational relationship to that collectivity
2: so yeah, I think that deorganization of society makes the kind of elite capture that you were describing possible and so i I kind of organize it in my head under the heading elite capture but there's obviously lots of ways you could think about it, but what it seems to me that's happening is decades ago if you wanted to weigh in on an issue that had to do with that had to do with a group and that group was represented by organizations you might think twice about it because as a spokesperson or as a kind of self-proclaimed spokesperson you would have to answer to an organized group of other people that organization created spaces where people could develop their own views on the topic and develop confidence in those views, both of which are important. It would also develop relationships of accountability. So, if you were a visible member of those organizations, like Dr. King was, for example, for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or as Malcolm X was for the Nation of Islam for a while. If you had a perspective on the issues those groups are organizing around and you talked without authorization, there might be a whole group of people that would have something to say to you the next time you went home or the next time you saw them at the grocery store, the next time you saw them in community. You would talk different. right? You would have more of a pause. And Just as importantly, if you contradicted something that they said, then they would have ways of getting out a a contradictory message to yours. They would have groups where that contradictory message could be discussed. They might have newspapers or pamphlets to get out the message contradicting yours. And so, even if you were bold enough to ignore those relationships of accountability, even if you were confident enough in your views not to mind that you might run into a bunch of people from these organizations that said, hey, this is not the way to represent our group. You might just be out-organized by them on a messaging standpoint. That's not true now. Now we have big tech corporations that have essentially asserted ownership over the huge, hugely socially important aspects of knowledge distribution.
1: The digital commons were sort of born and closed as far as most of us are concerned.
2: Right. And so if Mark Zuckerberg owns the attention economy rather than Marcus Garvey, then there's going to be different rules about who can say what about the topic of racial justice. There's going to be different rules about who can say what about the topic of disability justice. And there's going to be different decisions made in terms of how those things circulate. And those decisions are increasingly made by edge rank or whatever other AI social algorithm and not made by us at all, much less those of us who have justice in mind.
1: You have so many powerful passages, and this is really, honestly, one of the most important essays I can recall reading. Um, And I will include a link to it in the show notes so that everyone who has not already read it can do so. So many powerful passages. One that really hit home was your analysis of how deference epistemology can make white people or others deemed privileged into pretty crappy comrades. You write, quote, for those who defer, the habit can supercharge moral cowardice. The norms provide social cover for the abdication of responsibility. It places onto individual heroes, a hero class, or a mythicized past, the work that is ours to do now in the present. Their perspective may be clearer on this or that specific matter, but their overall point of view isn't any less particular or constrained by history than ours. More importantly, deference places the accountability that is all of ours to bear onto select people and more often than not, a hypersanitized and thoroughly fictional caricature of them. This really hit home. I know of situations where white people, perhaps with the encouragement of a lonely person of color in the room, concluded that the room was not optimally representative, and so decided or proposed that the most socially just thing they could do was nothing, which is often explained in the terminology of stepping back. What sort of comrades does this dynamic turn white people or others seem to be privileged into. And how does that in turn rely on this romantic kind of like noble savage caricature of the other?
2: I I use the term cowardice in the essay. I wanted to make the point as forcefully as I could. But I think it's also important to keep track of the fact that two things are being kind of weaponized by these norms. One being insecurity. So so why expose yourself to the kind of social sanction that might come from contradicting someone who's perceived to be someone you ought to defer to? It would it would take quite a bit of self-confidence or conviction, depending on the situation, depending on the room. So that's insecurity, um. but it also exploits trust. So especially, I remember being in a lot of organizing spaces where there were new people who didn't have a lot of experience with social justice or activist culture, and who just kind of saw everyone else doing these strange deference epistemology things, and they had to make a decision, right? Do they regard themselves <laughs> as the sort of person who can evaluate these, right? Is the person who just got in the room, you know, everyone says, the experienced activists say, if there are no people of color here, then we do nothing. Um, I just got here. What do I do? And, you know, I think the, the point is especially sharp if we're thinking about the people who might be new in these spaces, but the fact remains that trust is, A part of what's going on here. And I don't want to make it sound like it's just people who are unwilling to stick to their guns, who are, you know, who are her cowards, who this applies to. But either way, I think like what's going on in your question stands, the kind of people that are produced by these messages are the kind of people that we're training not to stand up to power. And I think the most convenient version of the case for Deference epistemology, we have to think that we're very selectively training people to stand up to power. The same people that we want to be bold enough to confront the cops, to, in the final analysis, confront the bosses and to confront the military. We want them to be lions in the streets and lambs in the organizing rooms. And Maybe this works. You know, people are capable of compartmentalizing. I don't know. But I would never ask someone. I mean, at this point, I I guess I just have to speak for myself. I would never ask someone to do that. I would never ask someone to put themselves in harm's way with me and sometimes even for me, who who I don't respect enough to hear out respectful disagreement with. And I don't understand why we have that expectation for anyone else. And again, you know, here I think is another point where I have to say the thing that I said before, where where it's just you know, I, I throw up my hands. I I I just won't do it. This is something I won't participate in. Um, and in a way, you know, I, you can only get so far with argument and reasoning. Um, I'm just not on this team. You know, and if I ask someone to do the kinds of things, to take the kinds of risks, to do the kind of work that activism requires, the very minimum I feel like I owe them in return is to treat them as a person and not as someone who I, not as a subject that I order around or, you know, demand that they bend the knee to me.
1: You write, quote, I think about James Baldwin's realization that the things that tormented him the most were the very things that connected me with all the people who were alive, who had ever been alive. That I have survived abuse of various kinds, have faced near death from both accidental circumstance and violence, different as the particulars of these may be from those around me, is not a card to play in gamified social interaction, or a weapon to wield in battles over prestige. It is not what gives me a special right to speak, to evaluate, or to decide for a group. It is a concrete experiential manifestation of the vulnerability that connects me to most of the people on this earth. It comes between me and other people, not as a wall, but as a bridge. With deference epistemology, it's not just what people know because of of who they are, but what other people cannot know because of who they are and who they are not. Where does this commonplace notion of, I don't know the correct philosophical term for it, so I'm going to try out radical epistemological alterity, where does that fit into your analysis? And why should we instead think of experience as a bridge rather than a wall? So
2: one of the core points that I'm making here kind of calls back something that i said earlier a point that came up earlier in the essay was that as identities become more and more fine-grained and disagreements sharper we come to realize that coalitional politics understood as struggle across difference is simply politics and thus the deferential orientation is ultimately anti-political and basically the thought that i was saying there and that i'm also coming back to at the end is that, you know, roughly speaking, there's a couple ways that we could treat the importance of experience and that we could treat the importance of particularly important experiences like trauma and pain and suffering and the experience of oppression. These are things that can cleave us apart from one another or they can do the opposite. And Baldwin, in particular, seems to me like someone who understood that in the most deep way that I think it can be understood. I think from a very young age, he saw himself as trying to figure out why other people were doing the things that they were doing. Whether you agree or not with what the people around you are doing, you can kind of see them as obstacles in the way of your self-actualization, or you you can see yourself as trying to live with them in a different way than you're living with them now. And I think what I was trying to say at the end there is that there's something in it for us beyond the fact that I think it's just a better description of people as their own fully-fledged human beings with their own pain with lives as serious to them as mine is to me. But beyond the fact that that's just, I think, true about the world and about other people, and that that's the way that you have to look at the world to get things right. I just think there's something in it for us if we look at other people this way. And if we adopt the view of ourselves that goes along with looking at other people this way. And you know, to put it quickly, I think it's the basis for solidarity like this is where it comes from it's not sameness right it's not the idea that we've been through the same things or that we want the same things or that we have the same ideas it's a much bearer it's a much more fundamental commonality that we all need each other and we all are in the situation where we're trying to deal with This huge thing, the world, our social structure in the world, these things that exceed us, that are bigger than us, that are larger than us, that were here before us, that will be here after us, that we can't possibly hope to fix on our own terms, with our own hands, with our own power. And that commonality can be enough if we have the right relationship to it if we have the right relationship to ourselves if we look at our differences as potential resources rather than you know walls as i put it there and you know i hope i don't know i say it out loud i feel like i feel like a fucking kumbaya hippie type person but it's I, i i just i believe it i'm i'm trying to be honest about that and i'm trying to not shy away from saying the thing I think is true. That's the thing I think is true. And that's the thing I think is helpful. And that's the thing I think is useful.
1: You close your essay with a really interesting argument about what standpoint epistemology looks like when it is actually put into practice instead of deference epistemology being put into practice. A quote, focus on building and rebuilding rooms, not regulating traffic within and between them to be accountable and responsive to people who aren't yet in the room, to build the kinds of rooms we could sit in together, rather than merely judiciously navigating the rooms history has built for us. And, And you point to the struggle launched by residents of Flint, Michigan, in alliance with scientists to expose their city's contaminated drinking water and to get clean water instead. You write, quote, They didn't need their oppression to be celebrated, centered, or narrated in the newest academic parlance. They didn't need someone to understand what it felt like to be poisoned. What they needed was the lead out of their water. So they got to work. But, but you do write that establishing epistemic authority, that that was their first step. Explain this argument and why what you describe as actual standpoint epistemology in practice, why that requires this orientation to concrete, practical, strategic political action in the world?
2: Yeah, so there were a few things going on there. One is that epistemic authority was required, but they were using it, right? So epistemic authority wasn't itself the goal. It wasn't the thing that they were organizing their lives around. It was a way of getting what their goal was, which was clean water. So that's one kind of difference from at least the sort of moralizing ways of thinking about deference epistemology, where it's just, we're trying to fix complicity with oppressive structures, and that's why you have to defer to this person or that person to be morally right with justice, I guess, in a way that's insensitive to the actual practical consequences. Um, So one part of what's going on was that epistemic authority was part of a political project and an instrumental part of the political project as a, as opposed to being its own goal. And second, I think what's going on there is that the people were from what I can tell from the outside as an outsider, right? I very well might have a different perspective than people who know more. But what it seems to me is that people were very clear-eyed about what their objection was what their objective was, and being clear-eyed about their objective, their material objective, made them make different decisions about what kinds of knowledge they needed to develop. So people, especially in the academy, make a big deal about the fact that environmental racism was at play in Flint, Michigan, and I have no disagreement with them. I think that's right. But we should notice that people went and found scientists that had the labs that could prove what the Michigan department of environmental quality was saying to be fraudulent. They didn't go to the humanities departments or the cultural studies departments to find a new fancy <laughs> reading of, you know, of Fanon or Du Bois or whoever the fuck, and then present that.
1: <laughs> that was not what
2: they needed. And so that's not what they did. Right. And I think the lesson from that is, you know, if if these things that keep us up at night, how to read paragraph seven of page 42 of this or that particular radical thinker in this or that tradition, if these things are so fucking important, then tell me the full story of what we get on the other side of those questions. Right? And you know, that's not to say we shouldn't do those things. I'm an academic, I'm a nerd like everybody else. I just want to know stuff to know it. That's fine. But if we want to contribute, right? If we really think of ourselves as part of these movements or as, you know, as trying to at least help, trying to be relevant, you know, we should Learn about knowledge and think about knowledge on the ways that they demonstrate. And they started with a practical objective and figured out what knowledge was relevant to achieving it and figured out how to get it. If they can figure that out, the people that lived in Flint at the time, why can't the rest of us? Right, I think we should take a page from that book in general. We should figure out what knowledge is needed that isn't there or what knowledge needs to circulate that maybe is somewhere, but that needs to get from where it is to somewhere else. Um, And we we should try to figure out the practical projects that knowledge acquisition can fit into rather than having these debates for debate's sake. And this goes back to something we discussed at the beginning, which is just the institutions that produce knowledge don't reward this they either incentivize us to produce knowledge that people in power can use as opposed to knowledge that can be used against them or they incentivize us not to produce knowledge at all or at least not knowledge that's politically relevant this is true whether this is true regardless of the pretensions of the people producing knowledge some of these people say nothing about politics some of these people say a lot about politics, but what it comes down to is what gets used and what's usable. And as soon as we start to think about knowledge production on those terms, I think we'll come up with better ideas about how to be in these institutions, whether it's the newsroom, whether it's the think tank, whether it's the, you know, the policy office of this or that elected official, whether it's the union research groups, whatever it is. I mean, I, I suspect union researchers don't need our help with this. But you see what I'm saying? The people who are producing knowledge should be thinking about this kind of thing rather than deference politics.
1: Femi Taiwo, thanks so much.
0: And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our lead producer was Ren Bangert. Our researcher, David Mosscroft helped out with the show notes, and Ian Sowden was our marketing assistant. As always, theme song and intro is by Mike Barber. Our graphic designer is Dakota Coop, and I am your host and editor, Gordon Kadic. You can send us feedback by emailing the show. The address is dartsandletterspod at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at dartsandletters, we also have a new Instagram feed, and soon, a YouTube channel, so check it out. This is a production of Cited Media, and we are supported by our generous patrons. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash and letters. Patrons get content a day early. We're also supported by academic research grants that are about mobilizing research and democratizing the concept of the public intellectual. Our lead academic advisor is Professor Alan Sens at the University of British Columbia. Thanks for listening. Check back in next Friday.